This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2013 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world, now streaming only on Hulu. Hey, it's Todd, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is constantly changing, and things might have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with the news by listening to your local NPR member station and by visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Todd Zwillick with Vice News, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. In a week that saw Hollywood writers back at work, could anyone have written this script? I want to be a part of a conservative group that wants to get things done. But in the end, it was others in Kevin McCarthy's own party who did it for him. I don't think voting against Kevin McCarthy is chaos. I think $33 trillion in debt is chaos. I think that facing a $2.2 trillion annual deficit is chaos. And that's why I've moved to vacate the chair. Hours later, after all the votes were tallied, Kevin McCarthy's time as the 55th Speaker of the House was over. I don't regret my efforts to build coalitions and find solutions. So I may have lost a vote today, but as I walk out of this chamber, I feel fortunate to have served the American people. My goals have not changed. My ability to fight is just in a different form. No regrets from Kevin McCarthy of California, the former Speaker of the House. That's just some of the drama here in Washington. In New York, one courthouse provided a stage for a former president. Another provided the backdrop for the man once called the Crypto King. My guest this week, Benji Sarlin, Washington Bureau Chief of Semaphore. Benji, great to have you. Great to be here, Todd. Ryan T. Beckwith is here, politics reporter at Bloomberg News. Welcome back to 1A, Ryan. Thanks. And Bracton Booker is here, national political correspondent for Politico. Bracton, great to have you. Thanks for having me. All right, guys, let's start with some history. I'll take you back because history informs what's been going on in the House of Representatives this week. Two months before the French Revolution, way back in 1789, Congress met for the very first time in New York City's Federal Hall. And in the intervening 234 years, no Speaker of the House of Representatives has ever been removed by a motion to vacate. Until now, that very aggressive bam came from North Carolina's Patrick McHenry, bringing the gavel down on history and on California Republican Kevin McCarthy. So it's left us asking, what is next, Benji? As far as we know, what's next? Well, immediately after that gavel bang, uh, Republicans left for the week uh, because there was essentially nothing they could do. You know, they had to sort this out before the House can conduct even basic business. So we have the outline now of how they're going to go about that. We now have uh, three plausible candidates for speaker at the moment and some more kind of exotic fallback options. There's Jim Jordan, the uh, Judiciary Committee chair, a popular conservative. Uh, there's Steve Scalise, also quite conservative, a very longtime deputy to McCarthy, though their relationship has been a bit strained at times. There's Kevin Hearn, who's kind of an up-and-coming uh, businessman who's more recent to Congress, who heads the Republican Study Committee. And they're going to have a speaker forum on Fox News on Monday. Uh, which which was just announced last right. night. That's not the official uh, one, though. That's just sort of for the cameras. 
Yep, it's for the cameras, though I'm sure that'll be, you know, it, it's just possible that their perception in conservative media has been influencing some events with the recent <laughs> speakers fight. Um, and then the next day, they meet privately, uh, the House GOP conference, to discuss their next steps. And then as soon as Wednesday, there could be votes, but but not necessarily. And just because there's votes doesn't mean they pick a speaker. This is, you know, it took 15 rounds to pick McCarthy in the first place. This could be the beginning of a very long process. And by the way, the government shuts down in 42 days. And so Bracton Benji talks about perceptions in conservative media and... The biggest perception right now is that Donald Trump, the number one perception in all of right wing media, has made an endorsement. It's Jim Jordan. How important is that here? I think that's I think that's pretty critical. I think that's pretty critical. And in, in the fact that the much of the House conference and even when Kevin McCarthy was leading it uh, was very differential to what uh Ex-President Trump thought about uh, things going on in the House. So the fact that that Trump is out in front uh, giving Jim Jordan the endorsement, which he posted on his Truth Social, and among the accolades that he poured on Jim Jordan, including his uh, high school wrestling championships and his record as a high school wrestler, which I didn't think really mattered for this position, but it, it was clear that it mattered to Trump because he likes winners, right? So I, I Although think Jim Jordan's really... history at Ohio State University as a wrestling coach, as an assistant wrestling coach, is... is yes, um, is quite... Uh, quite, quite awful, fun. actually. I didn't, know if you go, yeah, I didn't know if you wanted to go there, and certainly that was not posted in the, in the True Social post, but... Well, we um, should say why, just to, just to be clear, so that people don't think we're being coy. Um, I think five or six former wrestlers at Ohio State University in a scandal about sexual abuse of wrestlers at that university have come out and said that when Jim Jordan was assistant coach there, he knew about the abuse and did nothing. Yes, yes. He looked, he looked the other way um, and, you know, and, and certainly has not paid a, a political price or, or a legal price for, for those allegations uh, so far. But fast forward to... To where we are today, um, Jim Jordan seems like he is on uh, certainly the, the inside track to to win this uh, speaker's gavel, but it, it remains to be seen because what all these concessions that McCarthy made in order to get the speaker's gavel, I can't imagine that same uh, boisterous small group of uh, uh, far right Republicans is not going to want to retain that same level of, of power over the speaker, and I'm not sure that Jim Jordan's going to uh, agree with that. But he may have no choice if he wants to have the gavel at some. So point. Ryan Teague Beckwith, how how effective or useful is Donald Trump's endorsement of Jim Jordan? Certainly, there are a lot of this is a, a closed ballot. It, it no, notoriously difficult, in fact sometimes impossible to predict uh, how an internal vote for speaker goes in a closed vote in the House of Representatives. And Donald Trump's endorsement of Jim Jordan may go really, really far with a lot of right-wing members, but I calc- well, I didn't calculate it. It's known there are 16 members of the House Republican Conference who represent districts that Joe Biden won. Are they going to want to vote for the speaker endorsed by Donald Trump and do it publicly? Sounds like a complication. I think that Donald Trump giveth and Donald Trump taketh away. I, I, there are certainly a lot of members of the House Republicans who do not want to have Trump front and center here. Um, Jim Jordan has also been kind of the the lead guy on the let's impeach Biden, which is also not popular with um, moderates in the Republican caucus and with people who are in vulnerable seats that will be going uh, on up for election again next year in a presidential election when a lot of people who sometimes sit out those House races will be showing up because 
the president's on the ballot. So I I don't see Trump uh, Trump's endorsement as getting him to that because there will be a moderate rebellion. And the fact that this is a uh, secret ballot um, gives them a lot more ability to express that without having to worry that that might put them in an awkward position, you know, uh, with their with their own voters on the Republican side in their districts. Benji Ryan and Bracton both describe a House Republican conference that's unpredictable. It's a secret vote. Trump's endorsement is complicated. It's all a bit of a mess. And one of the things that tanked Kevin McCarthy was the fact that it only took one member, in this case, Matt Gates, to bring that motion to vacate. Does that rule stay do you think after this speaker fight is done or does the next speaker have to keep the rule, the, the sword of Damocles that hung over Kevin McCarthy's head? Well, that's one of the big questions hanging over the speaker race, maybe even more than who they pick. Uh, a lot of members have made the case, especially on the moderate side, that, look, whoever we choose, and these are all good options, you know, you probably would hear them say too, uh, you have to change this rule because they're not going to have any room to operate because at the end of the day, they are going to have to cut some kind of deal to keep the government open and keep the lights on that conservatives are not going to like. And they have to have the leeway to do that. You know, hopefully it'll be the terms will be in their favor, but they have to eventually cut this deal and they'll just be removed the next time. So you've seen some members saying even potentially as a condition for their vote, they're going to need to uh, change this motion to vacate. Jim Jordan, for his part, has said he is fine with keeping it. That's part of his pitch to conservatives. Uh, he, he has publicly, uh, if not exactly endorsed it, said he's not going to go out of his way to remove it. But others are a lot less sure. And one big question, of course, is there's a bit of a tactical asymmetry here between the moderates and the conservatives, which is, yeah, you might have some members say, uh, we, we can't go through this again. We have to change the rule either internally among our conference or it's a more elaborate process, you know, among Congress writ large. But uh, are they going to withhold their votes from someone who has, say, 200 votes locked down for speaker over this and say we're going to go 18 rounds, you know, on the floor, just like Matt Gates, you know, forced to force McCarthy to do? Right. Do you uh, want to be the one conservatives are very skeptical? You want to be the one who causes the next crisis or do you just want to kind of sit on your hands? Well, Bracton, um, the shutdown hasn't gone away. We've made that clear at the top. The deal that kept the government open that led to Kevin McCarthy's ouster was only a 45-day deal. We're still in the same boat. We are. We are. And uh, I mean, like, whether or not you, uh, the Ukraine funding is, is going to be another contentious uh, uh, stumbling block for whether or not we keep the government open, it, 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 that also has not been removed, right? And certainly uh, with Jordan being in the lead position, one would think that he would not support uh, Ukraine funding, right? And but if Steve Cleese, who ha, who has voted for it repeatedly, if he somehow gets the the gavel, I think there's a better chance of uh, us avoiding the shutdown. But obviously, it remains to be seen. You, funding for the war in Ukraine is just one of the many critical issues that are on the bubble as House Republicans search for another leader. Uh, as Benji told us, this comes well. This is on TV on Monday. Then it's in private on Tuesday for a secret ballot, a secret ballot. And by the way, as somebody who covered the House for many years, I will tell you, any Capitol Hill reporter will tell you, members lie. When it's a secret ballot and they tell you who they're for, mm, it's secret. Don't necessarily take their word for it. And you won't know exactly how this shakes out until they get to the floor on Wednesday. Maybe Wednesday will be the day. So stay with us. The news roundup is just getting started. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the United States Postal Service. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping services? Then give your business a competitive edge with USPS Ground Advantage. Keep things simple with upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. Turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. All right, gang, let's get back to the news roundup. Related to Congress, important news from Alabama this week, a new electoral map that will be used in the 2024 election. On Thursday, three federal judges chose a new congressional map that maintains one black majority district and creates a second almost black majority district. That's what the Supreme Court ordered Alabama's legislature to do after deciding the maps that they used in 2022 were illegally racially gerrymandered. So Benji, how did we get to this point? It's been a long road with this case. That's right. It had a winding, uh, winding trial through the courts. There, um, it, it involves a lot of districting fights that were going on across multiple states. This was seen as kind of a test case for it, and it finally reached the Supreme Court. And in kind of a shock to a lot of people, um, two conservatives, uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh, sided with the court's liberals to say that the Voting Rights Act uh, made this map that Alabama submitted uh, unconstitutional, that they had unconstitutionally uh, packed black voters in one district and then cracked them as in dispersing them across several other districts to deny to deny black voters a second uh, district. And Alabama just refused to abide by it. <laughs> they kept going back to the courts and submitting relatively similar maps. And eventually it Supreme Court and uh, and other federal courts just said that's it, you know, and a judge basically had to step in and you know and give map options themselves. Um, it's a big deal. Democrats are celebrating, and if you look at the map, by the way, it looks uh, there's no ugly, sneaking, gerrymandered, weird districts. It looks like a puzzle a two year old could put together. You know, nice, neatly stacked blocks. So aesthetically, it passes the test there too, as well as uh, demographically. And this could eventually affect maps in North Carolina, in Georgia, maybe in Texas. So the implications are significant. And there's a racial gerrymandering case out of South Carolina being heard in the Supreme Court just next week. So, Bracton, these cases, there's a second black majority district in Alabama, potential. Uh, 
new black majority districts under similar legal theories, as Benji mentions, in Louisiana, North Carolina, Georgia, maybe South Carolina, we'll see. This may have pretty major political implications in addition to empowering black voters, which Republicans in Alabama seemed intent on preventing. Well, look, not only empowering black voters, but I mean, we're in our previous segment talking about, you know, the House majority and what that looks like uh, with their speakership. But this, these potential um, districts could have new black representation and perhaps flip the, the power uh, of the House over to Democrats if Democrats can successfully uh, run candidates and win in those in those seats. I mean, I think that's what gives certainly Democrats the the most excitement in, in Alabama is the the opportunity to uh, have Terry Sewell, who's the lone Democratic representative of Alabama, have someone else join from uh, the Democratic side of the uh, uh, of the party in the Alabama delegation. But what this really is is a you know a protection of of the Voting Rights Act, which was uh, the, the the legal theory behind the case was that it was being violated by all these maps that that certainly Alabama and South Carolina and, and Louisiana and, and other states were, were, were continuing to draw, diluting the power of the black voters, right? Because they were being packed into one district. Now, it seems like this is a much more democratic process. Obviously, Democrats still have to run uh, suitable candidates in order to get across the finish line. But it seems like there's it's, it's opening up the, the democratic process the way it's intended. Well, the Secretary of State... In Alabama, Wes Allen issued this statement, said, quote, uh, that his office will facilitate the 2024 election cycle in accordance with the map that the federal court has forced, my emphasis, forced upon Alabama and ordered us to use. It's important for all Alabamians to know that the legal portion of this process has not yet been completed. And that idea that it's been forced by outsiders seemed to many legal analysts to be the very point of Alabama Republicans refusing to abide by these court orders. Eventually, a special master had to produce the map because Alabama Republicans refused to do it, even after being ordered by the federal courts and the Supreme Court. All right, let's leave Alabama there and shift up to New York, where former President Donald Trump was in court this week again. Now, this is a civil trial. It could determine whether Donald Trump can ever do business in New York again, his native state. Judge Arthur Engeron, he's already ruled that Donald Trump, his sons, and the Trump organizations participated in a years-long pattern of fraud and deception for inflating his assets to defraud insurers and banks. But There are six more counts and the potential for the state to claw back $250 million or more of Donald Trump's money in addition to his licenses to do business in New York, which have already been lifted. The former president spent three days in court in Manhattan uh, and spent his time outside the courtroom attacking the judge and attacking New York Attorney General Letitia James. Our whole system is corrupt. This is corrupt. Atlanta is corrupt. And what's coming out of D.C. is corrupt. Uh, Ryan, Donald Trump didn't have to be in court. He chose to be in court. Why do you think he was there? Um, Donald Trump has long approached legal battles as essentially publicity battles, even if even before he was in politics and even if he had decided to retire from politics after leaving the White House, he still would approach this the same way. And that is that he really believes that what matters is public opinion, what people think about you. A a court hearing is a time and a place where there will be cameras present. He likes to get in front of those cameras and put his spin on things. 
I don't think as a legal strategy, anything that he was doing was smart. Um, I don't think it helped him with the judge to attack the judge's clerk on uh, Truth Social. I don't think that the going into the hallway and standing before the cameras and saying everything is corrupt is going to help him. Um, but I don't. I think that he looks at that as just kind of like secondary to uh, making his political point or his sort of public opinion point of getting out and telling people that this is wrong and he's being unfairly treated. So that's the campaign part of these cases, and the cases in the campaign have become inexorably intertwined. But Menji, there was a lot of important stuff that actually happened inside the courtroom where it really, really matters for Donald Trump. What was important this week? Well, uh, the big thing going on uh, yesterday was, uh, or sorry, Wednesday, was uh, his accountants were testifying, the folks who were in charge of, you know, of submitting these statements that are there in question. And a lot of the dispute was pretty much them being cross-examined by the by the government and by Trump's lawyers over who was to blame, basically, for these inflated financial statements that the the state calls fraudulent. Uh, The accountants say they were given bad information by the Trump business themselves, that it wasn't their responsibility to to vet it in certain ways. But the Trump Trump business argument is that uh, they, they screwed up. It was their oversight that they created these problems. They're ultimately responsible. And of course, this is what will be up to the judge to decide. And this case, we're told, could go on until mid-December. So strap in if this is your thing. This one is far from over. Um, But also inside the courtroom, Bracton, um, after attacking the clerk, as we mentioned, Judge Engeron's clerk, um, a thing called a partial gag order came down on Trump. Explain that and and why that matters. Well, yeah. um, The the judge essentially said that that Trump could not go about attacking any of the court staff. Uh, this stems from a uh, Truth Social post where uh, he basically claimed that this, uh, this uh, clerk, uh, Allison Greenfield, um, was a supporter of, of, of Chuck Schumer and therefore like in line with the Democrats and kind of bolstered his, this idea that he has, that he's been promoting, that all these court cases that he has, uh, a, that he is a part of, are are tainted and, and fraudulent cases that are that are engineered by the Democrats. So uh, during during a, a break in the court proceedings, there was uh, there was an order for him to remove uh, the Truth Social post, and eventually it, it happened. And it, it's not it's not clear if he's going to continue to follow that. It would be legally probably good for him if he did not. But I think the way that um, Trump uses these these court appearances as as was alluded to as as sort of these campaign stops to show that he's being uh, being attacked by both, both the media and by Democrats helps him in his campaign, but certainly is not beneficial for his uh, myriad legal woes that he's facing. So that's the civil case in New York. And just to update you quickly on developments from around Trump's other legal exposure all over the country, um, Trump this week made moves to delay or dismiss. Basically everything against him in other venues. He asked the judge in the federal election interference criminal case to dismiss that case. He asked the judge in the Mar-a-Lago documents and obstruction case to delay the trial until after the election. And he appealed to the judge in the Stormy Daniels hush money case in New York to dismiss that case too. And critically also asked uh, for immunity in the federal 
coup case, the one taking place here in Washington, the four-count criminal indictment against Donald Trump. And that appeal is a little different, I'll just tell you quickly, from some of the others that we've seen. It's not a throwaway appeal. If this appeal is denied, it can be appealed right in the middle of the trial. It could go to the Supreme Court, and it could cause potentially significant delays in this trial. That trial is scheduled for March, so we have to watch that presidential immunity appeal and to see where that goes because it could have important implications for that case. Let's turn to the presidential campaign now just for a moment because on Monday, Donald Trump's campaign called on the Republican National Committee to cancel all of the remaining presidential primary debates, arguing the committee should instead focus on defeating President Joe Biden. Um, Benji, Donald Trump called the rest of the debates uh, a waste of time. Does he have any hope in getting these debates canceled? Uh not necessarily, though they may have diminishing value. They have so far not changed the race much. We've had two, and his lead just seems to get bigger afterwards. And the RNC is not taking this especially seriously because this has been Donald Trump's argument basically since the start of the race. It's not like he went into this primary saying, well, it's a fair fight. May the best person win. His position from the beginning has been basically it's his nomination by right, he is still the incumbent, essentially. He's argued he never lost and that it's a waste of time and they should all be backing him. So that is pretty much how it's been since the start. I don't think anyone is treating this especially differently. Uh, but it is true that uh, are you talking about this primary a lot with lately with <laughs> right. your friends on, on news? I mean, it really is kind of fading into the background unless something really big changes soon. So and he does have a point that they're becoming less relevant. They haven't moved the race and the ad prices for a 30 second ad on Fox News dropped, I, I think, by like 50 percent between the first debate and the second debate. So if that's your most important indicator of is anybody watching and does anybody want to watch, maybe the uh, – the ad price is the most important one. Um, I want to make sure that we cover some very important news on immigration that came from the border and from around the country this week. The Biden administration made a couple of big decisions, uh, for one, expanding the border wall with Mexico. Um, Ryan, this was a surprise to a lot of people. Democrats, including President Biden, have railed and railed and railed against the border wall. And then all of a sudden, the Biden administration announces they're spending billions to build it up. What happened? Well, the Biden administration said, basically, President Joe Biden himself said this, that his hands were tied because the money was appropriated already, that they did what they could to try to stop the money from being spent, but that in the end, uh, they legally were required to do it. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of the actual legal arguments behind that, because a lot of that sort of happens behind the scenes. But uh, it's, it's fair to say that he did not want to build walls. He had pledged to build, quote, not one foot, unquote, of wall. And he has argued that things like better enforcement um, at the ports of entry, uh, increased use of technology would be better uses of uh, Border Patrol money. Um, but uh, that said, uh, you know, he had to be if, if he has to do it, he has to do it. That's about 17 miles of wall. Uh, I think, you know, pretty soon they'll pivot to probably saying, hey, you know, Donald Trump only got 50 miles of wall built and we got 17, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> they, <laughs> they love to point out that Trump promised to do something that they did. So uh, I don't think this gets him much politically. So I don't think that he did it for political reasons, uh, because if you were going to do it, you'd do more than 17 miles. Uh, Bracton, the Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas also announced that the administration will begin deporting Venezuelan migrants. Um, access to visas for Venezuelan migrants were opened up. So what's the tension here? 
Well, the tension is that, uh, look, I, I think that what the administration is facing is just all kind of backlash, not only from uh, from Republicans, but also some Democrats, right? And you see that Eric Adams is going down to uh, to Latin American countries to try to promote this idea of not coming to the United States because these liberal cities that uh, these migrants are being shipped to once they arrive to the United States are being taxed. You're seeing that with Mayor Brandon Johnson in, uh, in Chicago as well, kind of begging the administration to do something. So I think that's the, the administration's push to try to stem this this record of, of migrants coming over uh, to the U.S., which had seen a, a bit of a drop early in, in the spring when in Title 42 uh, initially lifted. But we've now seen um, that the, the migrant crisis is, is in full effect and record numbers of folks are, are, are coming across the border. And there does not seem to be a, a policy in place that is, that is stemming that flow. And Benji, very, very quickly, how important is the pressure coming from Democrats here on this? Uh, the governor of Illinois, the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of New York, all pressuring the Biden administration. Uh, it's it's a big deal. It's going to filter down into congressional elections in 2024 as well, even if those are safe blue states primarily where this tension is happening. Uh, it's one of the biggest stories to watch and one of the biggest tensions in the party right now. All right. Tensions in the party. Let that tension go. Let's take a breath for just a moment and listen to Mariah Carey, because according to Mariah Carey, the defrosting has begun. On Monday, Mariah Carey revealed her Merry Christmas one and all tour. We'll get underway next month in Highland, California. Get your tickets. Tinsel and those tickets have gone on sale for shows in Chicago, Boston, Toronto, Detroit, and more before concluding at New York City's Madison Square Garden on December 17th. Hey, make my wish come true. Stay with us as we wrap. <laughs> Who wrote that? With this week's news. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then, just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. 
Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to the news roundup. And let's move out to California, which has a brand new senator now. Gavin Newsom, the governor, selected LaFonza Butler to replace the late Dianne Feinstein. She did the work to change the world. And to be able to to sit in her seat, um, knowing that I will never be able to fill her shoes, uh, is the honor of a lifetime. That was freshly appointed California, now Senator LaFonza Butler. Um, So, Bracton, let's get a little background. What do we know about this brand new Senator Butler? Well, the brand new Senator Butler um, is... um, uh, a labor juggernaut in California. Uh, she most recently held the uh, post of leading Emily's List, which helps elect pro-choice women, uh, pro-choice progressive women uh, to to different offices, including uh, to Congress. And really what she, she represents is something that Democrats, certainly in California, but really Democrats kind of across the country have been clamoring for, is to have a black woman in Congress, or uh, in, in the Senate, rather, um, which has not had one since uh, Vice President Kamala Harris left to take her current position. Um, what this also represents uh, from um, from Gavin Newsom's standpoint is, is making good on the promise because he got into uh, a, a little bit of hot water with some of his uh, Democratic, Democratic colleagues in California when he appointed Alex Padilla to Harris's seat. So... He made the promise that next time something becomes available, he would appoint a black woman. And the politically kind of expedient thing that Newsom did, too, was he said he was going to appoint someone not who was currently running for Senate to uh, replace uh, Dianne Feinstein, right? So he did not pick one of the – pick Barbara Lee, who is one of the kind of three – members of Congress that's currently running for Senate. She's a black woman who – wanted the seat, wanted to be the placeholder, but uh, Newsom rebuffed her on that. And so LaFonza Butler, the real big question that's kind of looming over her her time in, in the Senate and what we're hoping to find out in the next couple of days is whether or not she will actually launch her own bid to, to run for the full six-year term uh, in 2024. Benji LaFonza Butler, um, or I should say Barbara Lee, was certainly disappointed that LaFonza Butler was appointed to that seat and not her since she met the requirements that the government, the governor himself had laid out should the seat ever become vacant. Um, we don't know, as Bracton says, whether LaFonza Butler will run for re-election as the incumbent now, but where does that race stand now that none of the three current candidates um, – got the coveted incumbent appointment here? Well, it's wide open. Uh, There are some advantages right now for Adam Schiff, which is also partly why there was so much pressure uh, and hope among progressives that Barbara Lee might get a boost by being appointed. Adam Schiff is putting up monster fundraising numbers, like, like, you know, 30 million plus 
you know, cash sitting around. So it's like, he's going to be very tough to beat, but also as Katie Porter has her own progressive base of support and is seen as uh, one of the biggest representatives of the Elizabeth Warren wing in the house, you know, this is definitely still a very competitive race. Uh, So we'll see, obviously it's unclear how much Butler would throw a wrench into it. She has her own general election and primary vulnerabilities or rather primary vulnerabilities if she chooses to run, namely that she is moving from Silver Spring, Maryland, where I am currently speaking now, uh, which has come up quite a bit, um, to take the job. Uh, so it'll be interesting how that race goes. To become an official California resident. We got this from Barbara, who says, I get why Democrats didn't support Kevin McCarthy, because he gave them nothing. But I think it was a grievous mistake to actively participate in the ousting of him. I think they should have abstained, because I can only imagine how the next government crisis will play out, given who the next speaker will be. Um, that's Barbara's view on it, Ryan, but she does raise an important point. Like we said, we're not out of the woods here. There's another government shutdown looming. There are so many raw feelings, acrimony, and just real hatred in the House right now. Do you think Barbara's point that Democrats participated in Kevin McCarthy's ouster means something substantive for the next round of trying to keep the government open? I think that the the shutdown played a huge role in how he got ousted, both because conservatives felt burned by him that he didn't shut the government down. And this was a sort of uh, procedural maximalism that they wanted to take on. He wasn't doing that. So they went to a different procedural maximalist approach of ousting him from the speakership. But for Democrats, they were particularly uh, irritated by how he resolved the shutdown threat over the weekend, which was basically by coming to them at the last minute with a very detailed proposal, giving them very little time to review it, and saying the only way to prevent the shutdown is for you to vote on this compromise um, with you know moderates in the House, and then, then it will pass and go to the Senate. And uh, so they did that. And then he went on Face the Nation on Sunday and he said basically, you know, it was Democrats who wanted to shut down the government, which is the opposite of the truth. And I think at that moment, he really sealed the, the deal against him. Now, on the other hand, in his defense, I don't know how he could have gotten out of that in many other ways than that. Maybe if he had avoided twisting the knife on Sunday by trying to blame them. Uh, so... I don't know. If Jim Jordan is the speaker, I think you get a shutdown because he's always been a very combative person and that's what he's been doing now. Scalise will try to thread the needle. Maybe he'll go to them and say, listen, now's not the time given that we just went through this speakership fight. But the bottom line is that there is a core group of House conservatives who really want to do something uh, big. And whether that's a debt ceiling, ousting the speaker, government shutdown, they view the procedure almost as mm. the policy, like doing something to show people that breaks through the noise to show people that you're fighting is what they're interested in. And so something like a shutdown becomes almost an inevitability in that situation. Well, Jay says since McCarthy's exit was so swift, what are the chances the next speaker will meet the same fate? We've been dealing with this theme all hour, Benji. I mean, since so many listeners are asking about the speaker's race, let's do let's do one more thought on it. Um, Ryan is raising the important point that for some House Republican members, the point may be the chaos. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you think of the old uh, Game of Thrones line that's being quoted a lot right now, chaos is a ladder. Hmm. You know, some people tend to climb it. 
and in this case, uh, I think this was a, an argument people made a lot the first time when it took so many rounds to elect Kevin McCarthy, which is that the demands were so amorphous and unclear from the rebels and seemingly boxing McCarthy in at every every which way it wasn't even clear how he could get out of them that in many ways the point seems to be to show that hey we can take out a speaker this is a thing we can do we are willing to do it we are willing to throw things into chaos and have that message be go out to the next speaker and the next speaker after that and the next speaker after that which is that don't think you are safe because there's a 230 plus year precedent against doing this we will absolutely do this so i think that kind of chaos uh it, it may be as important in fact maybe way more important than any specific demand related to you know the budget or ukraine aid or or investigations uh, i think there's a strong point there and now with donald trump's endorsement endorsement of jim, jim jordan the chaos is likely to only amplify, not mitigate. And before we get out of Washington, speaking of Donald Trump, there is one story that I wanted to make sure that we don't miss in all of the fog of all these stories this week. Um, Donald Trump gave an interview to a right-wing website and in railing about immigrants at the border and migrants, he said this, quote, we know they come from mental institutions and insane asylums. There's no evidence of that. We know they're terrorists. There's no evidence of that. Nobody has ever seen anything like we're witnessing now. It's a very sad thing for our country. It's poisoning the blood of our country, is what Donald Trump said. Now, historians and experts were asked about this remark by some news outlets, especially the idea of immigrants poisoning the blood of the nation. This language echoes directly from themes from Nazi anti-immigrant and anti-Semitic propaganda. It is a theme in Mein Kampf. Only a few media outlets noticed, but I wanted to make sure that we noticed on this show so that things like that don't just pass by in our politics as the new normal. Out of Washington, we go to another courtroom in New York where Sam Bankman-Fried, the former king of crypto, I guess we'll call him, is on trial in New York. Uh, Ryan, what do we know? Yes, well, this is basically uh, a standard issue fraud trial where they are going to say, uh, and have been saying for three days now, that uh, you know he took money from people under false pretenses. He took it under the idea that they were holding it for investment, and then he repurposed that money and put it somewhere else to use it for other things, uh, to put it in very simple terms. Um, the trial is not going well for him. Uh, the bottom line is that there is just a ton of evidence here, and his lawyers were not able to exclude that evidence. They have tried ob objecting to uh, the inclusion of things, but uh, yeah, the vibe that I'm getting from his lawyers in court this week is like Hamilton Berger in the last 10 minutes of a Perry Mason episode when the case starts falling apart. Like, it's just... It's not a good. It's not a good look for them. It's not looking good for. Uh, they seem to be really irritating the judge. So, honestly. So here's a question and, that came up in the courtroom as well. It's a weird one. How much would it actually cost to keep former President Donald Trump out of the 2024 presidential race? Is there a price? Well, Sam Bankman-Fried apparently thought there was one. He considered paying Trump five billion dollars to remain on the sidelines. That's according to Michael Lewis, the author of a new book about. Sam Bankman-Fried currently on trial for defrauding customers of those $10 million. Um, Bracton, that deal never went down. But um, is it even legal to pay someone to not get in a race? Look, I, I, 
I am not sure on the legal ramifications on paying someone not to run. But when I saw that figure, the only thing that really came to my mind was like the Austin Powers uh, of $5 billion. I was like, what kind of mastermind is sitting around? Like, how much would it cost to keep this guy out of the race? Like, I got it. Like, $5 billion. Oh, easy. Let's make that check available. <laughs> uh, but to, to answer your, your, your legal question, it does not seem like it, it, it would be legal. But I, again, I am not clear on the legal legal ramifications on whether or not that that's possible but certainly this would be a first but uh maybe not the last time somebody floats uh, an idea about how to thwart trump from marching to the nomination i mean five billion is a lot of money it would be a temptation to anyone but five billion does not keep you out of jail you can't pardon yourself with five billion dollars so maybe that wouldn't have been enough i guess I guess we'll never know. Uh, Before we check out of the news roundup, I want to hit one more very important news story, very important for the more than 40 million Americans with student loan debt. Uh, If you're one of them, you probably already know that payments resumed this week after nearly a three-year pause, mainly due to COVID. Uh, President Biden also announced at the same time more student loan relief payouts to the tune of $9 billion, and that money will help around 125,000 borrowers, which is a low number. So, Benji, what are the ground rules of these resumed payments now after such a long hiatus? Well, the bottom line is you have to start paying them. Uh, but the uh, administration is also trying to route borrowers to a new program that is income-based, that they hope will be a lot easier for them to handle, that will take into account their, their income and recalculate payments. That could be a bit, a bit of a tricky process. There's a lot of concern that in the short term it could be difficult to transition people to this, both making it known to them and also there are some steps that go through that might temporarily increase their payments. But they're hoping that this new system that's resuming will be a a better one than the one that students were dealing with before. Now, the other important point of this um, that I saw in the coverage is that if you do – payments resume. If you do miss a payment in the first 12 months, it doesn't ding your credit. Like you have to pay. Interest can accrue, but credit is protected. That's just one factor here. Um, Ryan, what else do we need to know, including potential legal scrutiny on this new $9 billion of loan relief? Right. The original plan that the Biden administration had was very simple and straightforward. There was, you know, if you had this much debt, we will forgive this much debt. And there was a very simple sort of uh, way to implement it. The Supreme Court threw that out and said that was overly broad and kind of maybe invented a little legal doctrine to justify throwing it out. So what Biden is doing in all of this since then is just looking for every every sort of little program here or there every loophole, every sort of uncovered thing, and and giving it away in smaller chunks. It's possible that these will also be uh, subject to a court challenge, but because they're coming from so many different programs and those are pre-existing programs, it'll be a lot harder to stop all of them or, or probably even most of them legally in the same way that they were able to with the Supreme Court. The problem is that I don't think politically he gets as much advantage from this. When you do something big and dramatic, um, especially if the other side challenges it and you succeed, um, then that seems to be what is able to get out there to people. Mm. But these little pots of money here and there, I think for the people who get them, they're going to say, hey, this is great. Are they necessarily going to connect that to Joe Biden? I don't know. And does that mean that people out there who are still paying their payments – Uh, are going to give him credit? Probably not. 
payments resume all across America. Credit is protected, at least for the 12 months. And that's our last story of the week. I want to give big thanks to my guest, Bracton Booker, national politics correspondent for Politico, Benji Sarlin of Semaphore, and Ryan Teague Beckwith, politics reporter at Bloomberg News. We're going to head to a quick break here, but we'll return with the global edition of the News Roundup in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Warby Parker. Their glasses start at $95, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Try five pairs of frames at home for free. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered. This message comes from NPR sponsor Warby Parker. Their glasses start at $95, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Try five pairs of frames at home for free. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bell's Brewery. Bell's have been brewing their flagship two-hearted IPA with a devotion to craft for nearly 30 years. Their standards for the ingredients that go into the brew are ridiculously high. In fact, when it comes to selecting hops, there's no middle ground. It's either graded in A+, or, well, they're happy to let the other breweries use it. Bell's Two-Hearted IPA. Bell's Brewery, Comstock, Michigan. Please drink responsibly. It's time for the Global Edition of the News Roundup. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get into it. Our guest, Amy McKinnon, National Security and Intelligence Reporter at Foreign Policy. Amy, it's great to have you back. Glad to be back. Elise Labatt is here, founder and editor-in-chief of Zivi. Zivi, that's a youth, uh, youth-focused youth digital news and information platform. Hi, Elise. Good to be with you. And Kriti Gupta is an, is an anchor and correspondent at Bloomberg TV and Radio. Thanks for being here, Kriti. Thanks for having me. Great to have you, too. Well, let's start with an announcement out of Oslo. Just today, jailed Iranian activist Nargis Mohammadi was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her, quote, fight against the oppression of women in Iran and her fight to promote human rights and freedom for all. We're going to have more uh, on more Nobel news later on in the program. But let's start off the news of the week with Ukraine. A missile, st- a missile strike at a shop and cafe yesterday in Ukraine where mortars were, mourners were gathered for a funeral. The attack in the tiny village of Haroza killed at least 51 people. It's one of the deadliest strikes since the start of the entire war. Earlier today, new Russian airstrikes killed two and wounded at least 30 on the, in the same northeast region of Kharkiv. So, Amy, what more do we know about what happened in Hroza, and why is this region being targeted now? So Hroza is is a very small village um, in, in eastern Ukraine, not too far from Kharkiv, which, which earlier in the war was, was a real locus of fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces. And, I mean, of the many devastating attacks that Ukraine has been subject to over the past year and a half, this one really stands out as potentially one of the most deadly attacks um, against civilians, with over 50 people now reported to have been killed. Authorities in Ukraine have said there were no military targets in Hroza, in this village, and so so there was no potentially legitimate target um, for, for Russian forces in this attack. And one of the reports I was reading today said this village only has something like 300 residents. And so with over 50 people now killed, it means one in six people in this village have been killed in a single attack. So it's a really devastating assault in, 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 you know, in a war where the bar is already incredibly, incredibly low. Horrific news out of Ukraine. The images were horrific as well, published all over the Internet for everyone to see the horror of this war. And 
Increasingly, it appears that Ukraine's fate, its ability to fight back this Russian invasion of its eastern front, is tied to other countries' willingness to support them. And this week's political turmoil, specifically the ousting of Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy here in Washington, could threaten U.S. aid to Ukraine. That's what President Biden said in a press conference on Wednesday. It does worry me, but I know there are a majority of members of the House and Senate in both parties who have said that they support funding Ukraine. So, Elise, um, funding for Ukraine seems to be in the balance here, and we don't know where the turmoil in the House is going. How are these things connected? How can we get a handle on how likely it is that the United States is going to continue supporting Ukraine? And, I mean, this all comes as the Ukrainians are on this counteroffensive, and um, they've been making some gains. You know, I, I sometimes you don't see it on the map. I spoke to some Ukrainians just the other day that I met with that were just back from the front lines, and they say that international support is really what's going to happen. You saw Zelensky come, and he told um, Chuck Schumer, the majority leader, that if they don't get the aid— they're going to lose the war. So now you have this funding bill that passed the Senate without passed the House without um, aid for Ukraine. It's unclear who the new speaker is going to be, and if it's someone like Jim Jordan who's talking less about aid for Ukraine, and you talked about this in the other hour, um, this really shows it. You know, and I think this comes as the American public is like, what's the end game here? And so when you look at what's happening in the United States, we're going to talk more about what's happening in Europe and maybe there's a little bit of um, decreasing resolve in terms of of helping Ukraine. The Russians are trying to seize back that uh, momentum. And as this counteroffensive, maybe the aid isn't going to come. Um, We have a couple of months of of aid left. But if that aid doesn't get renewed – Um, The Ukrainians are going to have a really hard time come winter. Well, the U.S. did send more than a million rounds of ammunition to Ukraine just this week. That ammunition was seized last year from a vessel accused of shipping weapons from Iran to Yemen's Houthi rebel group. So that ammunition rerouted to the Ukraine war effort. So, Creedy, the big question that Elise raises, how vital has military assistance been from the U.S. to Ukraine as political turmoil in this country puts Ukraine aid in doubt What does it mean on the ground operationally for the Ukrainians? Well, it's pretty vital. And I mean, you've seen this happen in the last, I think, year and a half, where suddenly the counteroffensive that Elise and Amy were just talking about really ramps up as they're able to get not just funding, but the actual weapon systems. And that's where the United States has really come in handy here. Most recently, uh, getting more of those Abrams tanks, the air surveillance systems over on the ground, uh, things like training uh, Ukrainian pilots to to fly F-16s and then arranging F-16s from other European countries that have them to then be transported to Ukraine. So things like that. Uh, Also, the very controversial decision of uh, sending over cluster munitions as well. Uh, So it is actively making a difference. The question is how sustainable is it and how long uh, can you actually do it at a time when even Ukraine's membership into the EU is starting to get less and less support by the day? Um, Elise, Jim Jordan is running for speaker. He said sort of two things this week that was really telling and interesting. At one point, he said, not for funding Ukraine, we're not going to do it. Then I think some Republicans who are really for it, some hawks got to him and said, wait, hang on, wait a second, you're running for speaker. And then he said, well, I need to know what the mission is, where's the money being spent? Those are two different issues. And I think it reveals something important. 
Well, it, it basically it reveals if, you know, and you said um, as someone who comes co- covers Congress that congressmen lie. So the question is, is he going to say, sure, sure, I'm all about aid for Ukraine. Then he gets in his speaker and you see, you know, Trump saying that, you know, obviously very close to Trump. Um, you know, we don't need to support Ukraine. Is he going to bend to those extremists um, in the party? And so that's why it's really important. And I think it really is going to be interesting how much Ukraine is part of this election for speaker and also in the upcoming election. Um, This week in Slovakia, a populist pro-Russian politician, Robert Fico, won the election for prime minister. He ran on a platform promising to end that military funding to Ukraine. Nearby Poland stopped supplying uh, weapons to Ukraine in late September. Um, So, Amy, it's not just the United States. Even Ukraine's neighbors um, and um, people in the neighborhood are starting to pull back. Right. And I think the short answer of what's going on here uh, is politics, both in the U.S. and Europe. Um, you know, Poland has has elections coming up later on this month. Slovakia just had elections. And these are providing opportunities for platforms for leaders that are skeptical of providing military aid to Ukraine, leaders which may have more sympathetic views towards Russia, as is, as is the case in Slovakia, to really get out there and make their case to the public. But whilst there's this kind of overarching trend uh, of, of politicians uh, um kind of taking, seizing this moment, each case is also different. I mean, what you have in Slovakia, unlike Poland, is you have a country which has long been, I think, out of the out of NATO, out of the Eastern Bloc, um, perhaps more skeptical of, of a military aid to Ukraine. There was polling recently by Globsec, which is a think tank based in the Slovak capital, which found that only 40% of the population um, were supportive of, of military aid towards, uh, towards Ukraine. And so that's something which politicians like Robert Fico, the potential new prime minister there, um, have been able to seize on on that skepticism. But at least when the invasion first happened, there was this attitude, and understandably so, in Europe and in Eastern Europe, Putin on our doorstep. This feels like 1938. We don't want a repeat of this. And that sentiment seems to have waned in some places and, pretty and quickly. Especially as the war drags on. And then, then there are some, whether it's Poland, whether it's Slovakia, um, also um, Viktor Orban in Hungary are saying, look, We need a diplomatic solution. We need to wrap this up. Um, But I also think, you know, Zelensky, whereas there was so much support for him, now I think there's like a little bit of, um, you know, frustration with him that there was this whole thing with with Poland where Zelensky kind of called this theatrics um, to the United Nations about the grain imports from Poland. And I think these leaders are saying, hey, this isn't a sense of entitlement here. We're suffering economically. We're doing the best you can. Um, you know, and obviously Ukraine is is fighting for itself, but they feel that they're fighting for all of Europe, as you said, on their doorstep. Um, but I think it's really going to be important how Zelensky manages it with the Europeans um, and not say that, you know, this is a, a demand really needs to work with them. How can he bring them along, even the ones that are the most skeptical? I hate to make this all about the United States, but at the beginning of this war, it was Joe Biden that brought NATO and really brought the European allies together to get behind Ukraine in a big way. What's the role for him here? I mean, does 
I don't know if this is the right way to put it. Does Europe need him right now for a repeat performance? Yeah, I think they really do. And, you know, not just with NATO, but with the European leaders, he's going to have to form, you know, as we'll see what comes out of Slovakia and the coalition that he has there, what Fico has there. But it's going to be really important for him to um, reach out to that Slovakian leader, reach out to Orban, to Poland and try and get everybody back in the tent. Managing funding for Ukraine, both in Europe as some Ukrainian allies, erstwhile Ukrainian allies start to wane, and as the United States itself might be starting to wane on support for Ukraine against Russia. Well, we mentioned the Nobel Peace Prize awarded this morning to jailed Iranian human rights activist Nargis Mohammadi. Well, this week, Nobel Prizes were also awarded in physics for the study of electron dynamics in matter, for chemistry for the study of quantum dots, and in literature to an acclaimed Norwegian writer. But here's a question. Who do you call when you win the Nobel Prize in medicine? Well, you call your folks. I, I have some news. Shoot. You're both on? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I won the Nobel Prize. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Congratulations. Oh, how fabulous. You... Those two beaming parents are the mom and dad of Dr. Drew Weissman, who, with his co-winner, was awarded the prize in medicine for his work that enabled the development of the effective mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. Dr. Drew Weissman's parents there on that phone call. So let that sit because that one. Yeah, my mom's waiting for that call. (laughs) (laughs) Elise's mom is waiting for the Nobel (laughs) Prize call. Well, mom, stay by the phone. For now, you'll just have to have. uh, I'm going to be on the the 1A show, mom. (laughs) and, and And she's just as excited, believe me. Exactly. How much more prouder could she be? <laughs> All right. I want us to um, turn the corner from that and move on to Haiti, where the news has not been so good. Haiti has been embroiled in a lot of violence for several months now. The UN, Sec- uh, UN Security Council voted on Monday to send a multinational force to Haiti. Today, the UN Security Council made history in authorizing the multinational security support mission to Haiti. We have stepped up to create a new way of preserving global peace and security, answering the repeated calls of a member state facing a multidimensional crisis amid alarming, spiraling gang violence. That was Jeffrey De Laurentiis, acting U.S. ambassador for special political affairs. The resolution, which was drafted by the U.S., was approved with 13 votes in favor, two abstentions from Russia and China. It authorizes the force to deploy for one year with a review after nine months. So, Kriti, as, as we have often discussed on the show here, Haiti has a long and troubled history with international interventions. Why would Kenya be leading the international force this time? What's at work there? I think it's the question simply of bodies being able to be deployed. You're looking at a mission of about, I think, a thousand police officers being sent from Kenya to Haiti at a time when there's real hesitation from a lot of the uh, perhaps larger, more global powers like the United States, like France, for example, that do have quite the history in Haiti. So just the optics of it are challenging to kind of come back into a country where there has been centuries of turmoil between them. 
On the other hand, Kenya, although to your point, does offer a, a, a fairly brutal take on, on human rights, you do start to see them say, well, look, we have a thousand people that we can deploy. Um, and, and it's a thousand people at a time when Haiti is really dealing with not just a lot of gang violence and not just poverty, but now a lot of famine as well as you start to see the violence spread to some of their key kind of food-making regions, their rice-making regions, um, to the point that you're now seeing children actively harmed in that process. Well, the deployment of this armed force is hope to restore peace and security to the country, as Kriti was describing. Also hope to aid in the long-awaited general elections that have been repeatedly promised by Prime Minister Ariel Henry after the July 2021 assassination of President Jovenel Moyes. So you mentioned a force of a 1,000 Kriti uh, and, and the mission to try to try to foster elections. But, but we also mentioned that this is a long history of spiraling violence and a troubled history with international intervention. Is there anything that's been done different here? And, and, and what's the end game for this force? Is it a, is it a stable Haiti? I think that is the the goal, but remember, the 1,000 is just the the preliminary deployment of people. Mm. Ultimately, if you look at what Kenya is actually promising, they're saying that the project could take as much as three years, require up to 20,000 personnel. So this is kind of just phase one of what's expected to be a larger a larger peace project. But I think to your point, you are going to see these kind of checkpoints where the UN is going to reevaluate in a year's time. So we might not even get to the point of 20,000 people on the ground. We might not even get to the point of a peaceful Haiti. Um, right now, it kind of feels like it's just this one year. We'll see how it goes, uh, especially given Kenya's track record. And Kenya's track record, at least, is important here. I mean, Kenya's president, William Ruto, he welcomed the UN resolution to send his forces in there. But but Kenyan police have also been accused of using torture, deadly force, other abuses. Um, I don't know if there are any safeguards in place to make sure that they behave better in Kenya than some of those forces. We don't know if it's the same people uh, have behaved in their home country. Um, but there's been some criticism of, of Kenya leading this mission. There has been. I mean, look, the U.S. was looking for them to do it. So that's one of the reasons why they are, they're doing it. They also have a lot of experience, you know, which comes with a lot of criticism. They were in Lebanon, Sierra Leone, South Sudan. They're part of the AU peacekeeping mission in Somalia. And then they're setting up this regional force. So what they're going to do is they're going to go in and not just be a peacekeeper, but they're going to try to do an audit of these gangs, where they're coming from, try and train um, Haitian police to really get control of the situation. And that's one of the problems, I think, over you know peacekeeping missions over the years. They just come in and try to keep the peace without helping Haiti develop um, the law enforcement, the institutions that will help them you know, be all be sustainable. And I think that's one of the criticisms of international aid over the years, that wealthy nations come in, they take control, but they've never really helped Haiti stand on its own, either on the law enforcement, on the development, or on the mm. political situation. So crisis in Haiti, international intervention in a crisis, and the tension between that and investing in the long haul for a country um, just a few steps south of the United States. Well, Let's move on to the latest immigration news, speaking of a few steps south of the United States, to talk about immigration and, importantly, migration. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken traveled to Mexico City this week. He was talking about the ongoing crisis at the U.S. southern border, where migration, of course, is soaring. In September alone, the U.S. Border Patrol arrested more than 200,000 people 
at the Mexican border, and that's the highest since December. So Amy Blinken wasn't the only high-level U.S. official in Mexico this week. Uh, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, was there. Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, was down in Mexico talking about migration, met with Mexican officials there. Um, What do these conversations look like? Well, I think that you have a trio of uh, Biden administration cabinet officials going down to Mexico just really underscores what an important issue this is for the administration at the moment. Um, the issues that were on the table this week were, of course, as you mentioned, um, immigration with just huge numbers of people trying to cross the U.S. southern border. Um, I think there was as many as 200,000 in September, a quarter of which 50,000 were from Venezuela alone. Um, but also on the table um, was, of course, gun trafficking. Mexico is very concerned with with guns being trafficked from the U.S. down to Mexico. And then the other way, of course, is um, is fentanyl, that very, very deadly drug, which is driving down U.S. life expectancy coming coming from uh, Mexico into the United States. Um, and th- these issues are all real points of political vulnerability for Biden ahead of the elections next year. And I think that's um, why you're seeing them trying to get a handle on it now. It's something that he's um, very much going to be hammered on by Republicans. But they're also seeing criticism from within in his own party. I mean, you mentioned the New York City Mayor Eric Adams, um, but also the governor of Illinois have spoken out and calling on the Biden administration to do more, saying that their cities, their states are, are really struggling to cope with, with the number of, of refugees and migrants coming in um, and to get a handle on that. Um, Kriti, uh, Amy mentions that Antony Blinken talked about fentanyl and the fentanyl crisis, um, rising U.S. deaths. What role does Mexico play in the opioid epidemic, aside from obviously being a a way station for these drugs pouring into the United States? Well, it's a way station, but it also has a lot to do with the kind of coordinated crime effort uh, when it does come to the U.S. border. And I mean, just to connect it back to politics here, this was one of the sticking points of the conversations with the shutdown, then ultimately uh, the deficit conversations as well over in Washington. But a big part of it is not just about fentanyl being manufactured in Mexico, which does happen using those Chinese chemicals, but it's also a matter of policing as well. And this is where uh, President AMLO has been pretty vocal, actually, um, in in a really stark contrast to to kind of defending almost his his own uh, policing efforts. He's been very vocal about saying that there isn't much he can do. And in fact, the, the onus basically comes onto China and to say that perhaps these chemicals shouldn't be supported out of China in the first place and hitting Mexico. And that was something that's actually building bridges between both the Mexican and American authorities. So that is, again, beyond being a way station, it's also becoming kind of a political bridge uh, that the two countries can can build. So President Amlo says there's not much he can do, by the way, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, otherwise known as AMLO. Um, but Kriti, are Mexican officials like AMLO? I mean, are they noticing rhetoric in the Republican primary and at the debates last week where Republican presidential candidates are advocating for attacking Mexico, bombing Mexico, and taking out cartels directly using American missiles across the border to, to fire at these cartels? Are they noticing? And what are they saying? Look, I think they are noticing. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to miss at this point, but I don't think it's a, a real threat that's being taken seriously because it's also clear that some of this rhetoric is coming from a party that ultimately uh, doesn't really have a, a coalition or a consensus at the moment. This is not the official take from the United States. So it would be a different story if you had a, 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 one of those people 
actually in office making those decisions. But right now, I think they're sticking with the top line, which is that the Biden administration is actively working with President AMLO to talk about the border crisis. And by the way, at a time when immigration is actually being accepted by the Biden administration, I believe recently they expect, accepted, excuse me, like 50,000 immigrants from Venezuela as well, granting them that protection and those work rights as well. So this is something that is actively being coordinated as opposed to simply uh, pressuring Mexico to deal with on their own. And again, that that marks a stark contrast from from the past few years. Well, the U.S.-Mexico border isn't the only place where countries are dealing with increases in migration. Pakistan has ordered 1.7 million people, mostly Afghan asylum seekers, to leave that country by November. Tensions Over Afghan migrants in the country have escalated due to a string of attacks along Pakistan's border with Afghanistan. And Pakistan is blaming the attacks on operatives based in Afghanistan. Last week, a suicide bomber killed 50 people at a mosque in Mastung, a city near the border. According to the UN, 1.3 million Afghans are registered as refugees and 880,000 have received legal status to remain. Pakistan says that 1.7 million people are there illegally. So, Amy, what's the plan here to expel these so-called illegal immigrants? And I, and I have to think it's causing new tensions between these two, two countries. Absolutely. I mean, um, if you remember back to when in the fall of the uh, the fall of the Afghan government two years ago, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of Afghans were scrambling for the borders as the Taliban were taking over. And one of the one of the primary countries which many people went to was was Pakistan. Now it's estimated that there are 4.4 million Afghan refugees in the country, of which around 1.7 million don't have either a visa or asylum status or some kind of documentation that could allow them to leave. And it's this 1.7 million, which Pakistan is now saying, time to pack your bags, time to get out. Um, They've given them a month of amnesty um, to to make their way out. But of course, I mean, many of these people among them are journalists and prosecutors and people that worked for the former Afghan government who could face um, real violence and uh, threats to their security if they were to return to a Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Um, and so I, you know, I th- I'm sure this is causing chaos um, and, and great fear amongst Afghan families in Pakistan who are now left wondering, again, what to do and where to go. Oh, Kriti, we were talking about the UN vis-a-vis Haiti just a few moments ago. Has the UN responded to Pakistan's plan here? Uh, they haven't just yet, but look, you have to you have to keep in mind that this is a, a really tricky issue when it comes to immigration as well. Simply because Pakistan has actually dealt with the fallout of a lot of those uh, Afghan immigrants post Taliban, and that at that point they did actually make a statement. So you haven't seen them be that vocal, but again, uh, I imagine a statement is coming. And all over Europe, in, increasing calls to staunch. Migration. It's not a surprise from some of the countries who've been saying it, but at least Britain's immigration minister, Suella Braverman, has said that international refugee law should be rewritten to discourage migration. So what message is the British government trying to send to people who may be fleeing to that country? It seems like the message is clear, um, as they used to say, don't come. It's not only it don't come, but we're going to send you back. Um, they were trying to send them back on this big barge. Um, they were coming in on these small boats trying to send them back on this big barge. And then there were fire hazards. There were all of these, um, you know, there was some bacteria um, that could cause Legionnaire disease. Um, and now they, they're having to, you know, detain them and remove them. And they're saying they're going to send them back to Rwanda or another safe country. 
And, you know, critics of these proposals are saying that they, you know, are violating international law. But at the same time, you know, the British are saying we'll do, you know, then the prime minister is saying we'll do everything we can to send these people back. Greece, in fact, is saying that um, they're pressure they're pressuring the EU to impose sanctions on countries that won't take these migrants back. Um Elise just mentioned Greece. Amy, pick up on Greece because they've called on the European to impose sanctions, as she mentioned. It's not just the UK that's starting to turn on migrants here. No, nor are they just starting to to turn. I mean, this has Mm. been an EU-wide problem for many, many years uh, now, the question of of how to to respond to just huge waves of of asylum seekers and and refugees coming into the bloc. Um, As you mentioned, the Greek Minister for Asylum this week called for the EU to sanction countries that will refuse to accept migrants deported by the bloc. Um, And this is just, it's an issue which the EU has grappled with now for many, many years, as I said. And there just seems to be no... um, no solution. And the other point I want to make is that bound up in all this is that many of these people are actually genuine asylum seekers or genuine refugees. They're fleeing wars, poverty, violence, um, and the EU just has has no idea what to do. Well, this week, India told Canada to remove 41 of its 62 diplomats in the country as the diplomatic fight between the two countries just gets worse. In September, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announced that India may have been involved in the killing of a Sikh separatist leader in in suburban Vancouver earlier this year. Here is India's External Affairs Ministry spokesperson Anindran Bakshi on Thursday. Given the much higher diplomatic presence of Canadian diplomats or diplomatic presence here in Canada and their continuing interference in our internal affairs, we had and we have sought parity in our respective diplomatic presence. Arindam Bakshi of India, they're raising the issue of parity, but India has also cancelled visas for Canadians and there have been tit-for-tat expulsions of diplomats by those two countries. So, Amy, how much has this issue between India and Canada escalated um, over this latest move by India. This story is is becoming weeks old now. It is, but it's a story that I'm, I'm, is, is both horrifying and, and I think fascinating. Um, you know, this, this accusation that Canada has put forward very strikingly that India was responsible for the assassination of, um, of a Sikh leader, Hardeep Singh Nijar, who was shot last month, and that accusing the Indian government of being involved in this. I mean... This is not a new phenomenon in the world stage, transnational repression. It's something which authoritarian regimes are increasingly reaching for, China and, and Russia being, and Saudi Arabia being some, some very prominent examples. But the accusation against India, the world's largest democracy, a close ally, a very important ally of, of the United States and the West, um, of being involved in an assassination uh, overseas is really quite startling. And it's put India, in the, sorry, it's put Canada in a very, very delicate position. I should say the Indian government has strongly rejected these claims. But I think you see the Trudeau government trying to walk this really interesting, difficult line of trying to push back, um, of trying to to call out the Indian government for this, but at the same time of not entirely isolating India because of that um, incredible importance that New Delhi plays for the West and also for the United States as it tries to rally its allies in, in the Indo-Pacific against China. So this really kind of interesting game of, of, of three-dimensional chess going going on here in response to this killing. Well, speaking of that delicate line, here is Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. We're not looking to escalate, as I've said. We are um, going to be doing the work that matters in uh, continuing to have constructive relations uh, with India through this extremely difficult time. 
So, Kriti, there's the prime minister saying we're not trying to escalate. Okay, that's some soothing rhetoric from Canada. Um, it seems like the United States is, as Amy suggested, is also in a bind here, Kriti. I mean, we, we have done a lot of work to promote India as the world's biggest democracy. And we've already stipulated in this conversation that assassinating opponents overseas is what authoritarians do, not people who freedom-loving Americans are supposed to be promoting. Yeah, I mean, the the tone has completely shifted uh, between Canada and India because Canada has now been a little bit more quiet uh, when it comes to making these accusations. Look, they're still standing by it, but they're saying, uh, we are going to deal with this on our own. We're going to deal with this out of the public eye, as opposed to the initial strategy, which was, uh, of course, as Amy just said, that kind of striking revelation from uh, Prime Minister Trudeau as well. The game changer here, I think, was actually President Biden, who kind of threw his weight a little bit behind Canada, but is largely staying quiet on the issue. He did initially say that he wants to look into the issue, and he encourages that the Canadian and Indian authorities work together. But at the end of the day, this is a really uh, tough issue because, I mean, the context for those not familiar with, with this is simply that the Sikh population in India is thought of as a kind of working class and frankly repressed population as well, somewhere that they have kind of made Canada somewhat of a home. If you look at the majority of visas from India going to Canada, the majority are for Indian Sikhs. So there is this kind of idea that the folks that aren't fully welcomed into society in India, specifically those who are in kind of farm-subsidized region of the country, are being given a home in Canada. This has been a a conflict for for decades now between the two that has, of course, come to a head. When it comes to kind of what a resolution might look like, it's still unclear because uh, it looks like right now at least the authorities are still working together. But you you said it yourself that you are seeing these tit-for-tat uh, kind of moves between diplomatic expulsions and, and then visas as well. Elise? Yeah, well, I mean, look, it has focused attention on this Indian diaspora and Modi's brand of Hindu nationalism, which is really um, discrimination against Indi- India's religious minorities. But the reason why Canada is in bind is because of the United States, its closest ally, which has really been courting Modi in India as the most important you know, bulwark against um, Moscow and Beijing. And that relationship that Biden has really nurtured um, is really at stake here. So, look, the United States provided a lot of the intelligence that led to this declaration, but now they're pulling back and they're behind the scenes trying to encourage, um, you know, diplomatic talks and not to escalate, but they are watching it very closely. I know the ambas- U.S. Ambassador Eric Garcetti has kind of told his staff to, like, gird their loins and say, listen, this could get a- ugly pretty quick. Fights among friends can get ugly, especially when you have so much time, money, and political capital invested. Well, I want to shift to an important moment in history, which is informing some strife in the world today. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. This was 1973. On Yom Kippur, Egypt and Syria attacked territory occupied by Israel, both in the Golan in the north and in the Sinai in the south. Uh, all around Israel. Shops and transportation were shut down because of the holiday this week. There were also no radio or television broadcasts. The Yom Kippur War is also known as the October War in Arab nations. Elise, you've been looking at how the anniversary of this war informs really the war in Ukraine, and and you had some interesting experiences uh, you were telling me 
in New York this week. Yeah, the Council on Foreign Relations um, had a conference on the on the Yom Kippur War and the anniversary and the lessons learned um, on peacemaking. And look, the Yom Kippur War, the, the one of the main reasons Israel won it was because of this repositioning of strategic support for Israel, um, which really set up that dynamic as the U.S. as the peacemaker. And then there was that oil embargo by OPEC that at the same time put the Gulf oil producers as um, the main, you know, power players in the region. And that dynamic has really continued for 50 years. But yesterday, Henry Kissinger, who was the secretary of state at the time, was recalling that it wasn't really about redesigning the U.S. position in the U.S. as much as it was getting the Soviets out of the Middle East and trying to, um, you know, buttress Soviet dominance in the region. And I think you see a lot of parallels today, which is what they're trying to do with Russia around the world, whether it's in the Middle East, whether it's with China, whether it's as Modi as we were just talking about. Um, but, you know, even though that war lasted less than three weeks, I think the consequences are still very profound today. That experience, Amy, with the Yom Kippur War and really the proxy nature of it, keeping the Soviets out of the Middle East, sort of does ring a loud bell when it comes to Ukraine and Eastern Europe right now. And you've been doing some reporting out of Ukraine 19 months since Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, how has the Ukraine war created what's a diplomatic opening for the United States in Central Asia? Right. I mean, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I think, has had a, a twofold effect in the region. The first is it has really, um, it's really bound up Moscow's attention, both uh, in terms of its just span of what it can can focus on, but also militarily. And I think you see um, the outcome of that this week in, in Nagorno-Karabakh, where uh, Moscow was really a, a kind of AWOL as uh, Azeri forces led this uh, lightning effort to retake uh, large swaths of, of, of that contested territory there. Um, but as you mentioned also in Central Asia, I mean, I think there's this opening now for the United States where you know, Central Asia has long been the, the subject of, of the, the, the quote-unquote great, great game, right, sandwich between these major powers, between Russia, between China, Iran, the U.S., and kind of Western powers also dipping in and out over the years. Um, you know, Russia was for a very long time the dominant power there. The countries, uh, the so-called stands, have this shared history in the Soviet Union. But I think the, you know, the shocking display of violence against a neighbor and a former member of the Soviet Union, Ukraine, has really made a lot of these countries rethink and very wary of that relationship with Moscow. And it's a region which, you know, historically was seen through the lens of the war in Afghanistan for the U.S., but of course with that war now over, there's this reshifting and the U.S. trying to engage. And you saw that at UNGA last month, um, where Biden had, for the first time, sat down and had this meeting with the heads of state of, of the other um, Central Asian nations, mm. the so-called C5 format. Um, so potentially an opening there, but you know, we've seen this over and over again with Central Asia, whether or not this uh, changes much, many facts on the ground, I think it, it really remains to be seen. Well, Amy, you mentioned Nagorno-Karabakh in Azerbaijan, and I want to make sure that we talk about the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia when it comes to Nagorno-Karabakh, because on Thursday, the EU tried to revive peace talks between the two countries after Azerbaijan launched a, quote, anti-terrorist operation, that's what they're calling it, against Armenian forces in Nagorno-Karabakh on September 19th. Now, Nagorno-Karabakh has for a long time been a point of tension between Azerbaijan and Armenia, and the area which is landlocked by mountains is internationally recognized as Azerbaijan territory, even though the people that live there are predominantly Armenian and operate under their own 
autonomous government. So Israel, which we were just talking about just a moment ago, has quietly supported Azerbaijan by supplying them with weapons in this conflict. So Krithi, what solutions, if there are any, on the table for uh, these peace talks right now? Yeah, I think that's the key word there, if there are any, because you have seen open condemnation for Azerbaijan from a lot of the specifically European uh, political players as well. But it's stopping short of sanctions, which is really what uh, some of the Armenians are asking for, saying that this is essentially an act of violence. They're calling ethnic cleansing that needs to be uh, punished basically via sanctions. But there's a real hesitation to do that on the European continent simply because, and it comes down to the economics of it all, which is that Azerbaijan at the end of the day is a key spot for oil and natural gas for the European Union. So there's a real hesitation to, to burnish that relationship at a time when Europe broadly is dealing with, with a broader energy crisis. And at the same time, it's worth mentioning that Azerbaijan is actually a U.S. ally as well. So that makes things uh, extra tricky. But At the same time, even though they are stopping short of sanctions, more aid is being sent to the region. You had the EU uh, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen uh, give about 5.5 million euros in aid on top of another, I believe, 5 million aid that was already uh, sent that way. So when it comes to kind of the... Uh, what can be done here. It's mostly being done through rhetoric and and through financial aid, but again, just stopping short of those sanctions. Following developments in Nagorno-Karabakh and the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And as we turn the corner now to the end of the hour, some action on the pitch and some bad news in Paris that I need you to know about. First action on the pitch, surprise announcement. Earlier than planned, actually, football's governing body, known as FIFA, has allocated the 2030 World Cup to Morocco, Spain, and Portugal. That was on Wednesday, but they also said that Uruguay, Argentina, and Paraguay will host three matches to mark the tournament's centenary. That's football across six countries in two different hemispheres, and by the way, yes, during two different seasons. But I want to end on the itchiest news of the week. In Paris, they call them punais de lit. In English, we call them bedbugs, but Paris is under siege, and in any language, they're gross. It's so serious that Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne called a meeting of ministers to tackle the crisis ahead of the Summer Olympics in 2024. France's transportation minister met with... uh, transport companies to draw up a plan for monitoring and disinfecting. And now the government is engaged in an effort to ease fears of the bedbugs. More than one one in 10 households in France was infested with bedbugs between 2017 and 2022, according to a report by the National Agency for Health and Food Safety. It stressed me out because this morning I had to take the train and I wondered whether I would find some. So I felt a bit hesitant, but at the same time, I know there are some also in cinemas and somewhat everywhere. So I paid close attention when stepping on the train and looked to see if there were any crawlers on my seat. Elise, just help me feel better about this, please. I can't. I can't. I'm obsessed with it. And social media is like is crazy with it. I didn't even know what a bed bug looked like until this week because social media, you know, now this is is blowing up. And I mean, it is concerning if, you know, millions of people are going to be traveling to France. I mean, look, it's it's all their excuses, COVID, climate, decline of cockroaches apply everywhere and are not new. So there's a rise everywhere in bed bugs, but France is worse in getting the brunt of it. Yeah, and, and I'm all grossed out and that's just fine. Um, this could spell like economic trouble. The 2024 Olympics, they got to get their handle on this. I remember the bed bug epidemic in New York and people were freaked out for years, burning everything, throwing out everything when bed bugs appeared. 
<laughs> Not a joke. All right. Big thanks to my panelists this hour, Amy McKinnon, national security and intelligence reporter at Foreign Policy, Elise Labitt, founder and editor-in-chief of Zivi, and Kriti Gupta, anchor and correspondent at Bloomberg TV and Radio. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. AC Valdez is our senior supervising producer. Amanda Williams is our special projects editor. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick from Vice News. We'll talk to you soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. Capella's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. See how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.